0: My name's Adam. I'm an assistant pastor here. It's really nice to be here with you this morning. You all could be doing so many things with your time, and you get up on Sunday after Sunday to come and be with one another and sit under the word of the Lord. God bless you. It's just such an honor to to be here uh, with you in this moment as you come to meet God. Be encouraged in yourselves in that. So one time I was at a church event at a different church. Um, I can't remember if it was a evening service of some sort or a worship night or I can't remember what it was. And um, during ministry time, I went and uh, similar to like what we do here, I went and received prayer and there were maybe like 50 or so people, it was a pretty large Uh, church, and uh, there were a bunch of us that came down and sat at the front of the stage, stood at the front of the stage to receive prayer, and there were a bunch of people just sort of wandering around, praying for you as you came up. And my friend Ellie came up and began praying for me. I knew her from partnering in college student ministry with her, and she came up and began praying for me, and I, I don't remember all the details and stuff, but she began to pray for me for, like, anointing of the gifts of the Spirit and as she was praying for me, she stopped and she had this moment where she just began to share with me like what was going on in her inner dynamics. She was about to pray for me to receive these gifts and she stopped and went, you know, I've got to be totally honest with you. I just recognize that in myself right now, I, I don't want to pray that you would be blessed in these gifts. I can't remember what exactly they were, A, B, and C or whatever. And she was like, because I, I've, I feel like they're my gifts. Like, I feel like I'm gifted in those areas. And and I I just have to be totally honest with you. I'm having this totally human reaction where I just, I I, I love the fact that God has, has blessed me and led me into these things and like I just have to be honest, I don't particularly want to share them. You know, and I just appreciated her, her so much for her honesty in that. And of course, what she did, uh, you know, after saying that was, you know, she said something like, but that's totally not what the Lord's doing and they're not mine and I don't have a monopoly on the Spirit. And so she, she just began to pray for me to receive and be blessed by all the things that she's particularly gifted in. And she, ways in which she blesses the church community, ways in which people come up to her and go, wow, you really move in the power of the spirit in these ways. And, and the ways in which that feels meaningful, the ways in which that feels like it's upbuilding for your identity. She just grabbed all of those things and said, God, whatever I have in those things, would you just give them to Adam even more abundantly? And that's stuck with me, right? That's been really impactful for me um, because it might sound silly at first when we think about, you know, I don't know, you know, what your reaction to, to that very human thing that was happening in her was, but um, I, I understand it really clearly in myself. Right? You know, you participate in a community and you feel like there are things that you're good at and ways that God has blessed you. And there's a really human thing that happens when you watch somebody else be blessed in the same way. You go, ah, I thought that was my thing. You know, and, and she just totally leaned into that and said, I'm not going to be governed by those feelings. God, would you bless this person e- even more than I am in these ways that I'm gifted and I think that she was able to do that in that moment because, at the end of the day, you know, even underneath all of the very human reactions that we have, she had a vision for all of God's people being blessed by the Spirit of God, a vision that went beyond her own uh, human tendencies to be self serving or self protective, that underneath that, out of her own encounter with Jesus, She had a vision that all of God's people, myself included, might be blessed by the Holy Spirit. And out of that place, she was able to pray that I would receive and abound in the life of the Spirit even more. I think that's a pretty rare thing. In fact, it's so rare, there really aren't all that many places in the scriptures where we watch somebody do that. We watch God have that attitude towards people quite often. God is willing to give away so that other people might abound. But there's really only one really clear example that I can think of in the scriptures where somebody is okay with God giving away to other people those things that he's given them. And we're gonna look at that story today. It comes from the life of Moses, that very imperfect leader of God's people who uh, messes up quite a bit, but also succeeds and reflects the heart of the Lord in some pretty incredible ways. I've titled today's sermon, Bearing Burdens by the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Lord, we lift ourselves up to you. We pray that you would be here. And Lord, when, when we lift ourselves up to you, we're, we're doing our best to sort of untether ourselves from all those things that would bind us and, and keep ourselves from focusing on you, from hearing you, from receiving your love for us. Would you help us to do that right now in this moment? And Lord, we especially lift up to you our inadequacies, and we confess that it's precisely in those things that you can work powerfully. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that in the lives of people here today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our text today is going to come from the book of Numbers. I know many of you are probably pouring through Numbers in your devotional time. We're going to read from Numbers chapter 11. You probably know the story already, but I'll just read it out loud. The words will be up on the screen. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabarah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We have never seen anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tents of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true to you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were not listed among the elders, but did not go out in the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel went to the, returned to the camp. <laughs> now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all across the camp as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them all out around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hatavah, the people traveled to Hazarot and stayed there. When we open to Numbers chapter 11, we see that Israel has just left Mount Sinai. For those of you who remember the plot of the Pentateuch, which is the name for the first five books of the Bible, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them out of bondage with a mighty hand. God led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, which they arrive at around Exodus chapter 19. Once at Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant relationship with his people Israel, calling them into relational faithfulness as a response to the gracious deliverance that God had executed on their behalf. (coughs) You may recall that God had promised Israel a homeland in Canaan, the promised land, but before they were able to set out for the promised land from Mount Sinai, the people needed to learn precisely how to exist in a right relationship with God. After a long hiatus at Mount Sinai and having taken the first few steps up their steep learning curve and what it means to be covenantally faithful to God, finally, in Numbers chapter 10, Israel sets out from Mount Sinai and begins to journey to the promised land. So they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. They go through the whole rest of Exodus to the end of Exodus, the whole of the book of Leviticus, and then 10 chapters in the Numbers before they leave. They're there that whole time. So, when we open on Numbers chapter 11... We are getting a look into the very first happenings of how God's new people Israel are doing on the journey and of what quality is their character and faithfulness. Spoiler alert, they're not doing well. (laughs) The text tells us that there was a rabble, a rowdy group who began to crave other food. And in their rabble-rousing, They made all Israel likewise yearn in their stomachs for what they didn't have, made them weep and wail before the Lord for want of what was unavailable to them in the wilderness. Now, the negative attitude that God clearly has regarding their request might strike some of you at first as unfair. Doesn't the scriptures elsewhere communicate that God hears our prayers, loves to meet our needs, gives good gifts to his children, and so on, and yes, of course they do. But in Numbers chapter 11, the problem isn't really that Israel is desiring meat. After eating the same thing day in and day out, it is natural that the appetite would begin to rebel. As miraculous as God's provision of the manna is, the text tells us that it was gleaned and essentially ground into these grainy seed cakes. There's no gluten-free option. There's no grain-free option. There's no variety. And you can imagine... How after a few days and then weeks and then the weeks turn into months, constantly disappointing your taste buds and picking the seeds out of your teeth, eventually it would be reasonable to request a culinary change. No, the problem is not in the request of meat itself. It is the basis of the request. Namely, that we had it better back in Egypt. So give us some meat. Notice in verse 20 what God says regarding why he is upset with Israel, quote, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? There's no mention here of the request for meat because it's not really about the meat. It is about how in tying their request for meat to the good old days in Egypt, Israel is rejecting and spitting upon the work of deliverance that God has won for them. Look again at what the people say in verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. We remember, they say, we remember how good the food situation was. There's no mention of we remember how we were slaves. We remember the lash across our backs. We remember how we were robbed of our children. We remember how Pharaoh denied us the freedom to worship our God. And we remember how our God, Yahweh, with a mighty hand, delivered us out of the land of our oppression. And we don't care how good the food was. We are never going back. No. In the midst of their physical wandering, their imagination also wanders. And driven by the stomach, the seat of desire, they begin to crave a return to Egypt, to be fed in a land who itself fed on them through forced labor and subjugation. They begin to entertain, exchanging the joy and yes, challenge, of wandering with a God who loves them for comfort and complacency, sitting under the harsh lordship of an empire that gave to them with one hand so that they could snatch away their life with the other. It's easy in this moment to judge Israel. How could they possibly want to return to Egypt? Egypt? But if we're honest, we must confess that we know what it is like to return to our own places of bondage because we simply aren't always in control of our own hungers and desires. It's interesting in verses 3 and verse 20 in the Hebrew, the same words are present to describe something that is among or in the midst of the people of Israel. In verse 3, it's this lusting rabble that's in the midst of the people of Israel. And in verse 20, it's God who's in their midst. And so the text sets off a challenge to God's people What do you want to be in your midst? Do you want this? this lust, this cavernous, gaping mouth of desire in your midst? Or do you want God in your midst, allowing him to meet you and satisfy you in the places of your needs and wants? And in our most sober moments, we admit that we often choose to satisfy our hunger, our need, however we can, even if it means going back to those Places, those secrets, habits, activities, substances, financial decisions, relationships, websites that God had already delivered us out of. This is why it's so powerful that that Jesus offered his body to us precisely for our eating, for our sustenance, because when we find that those insatiable hungers, which we thought we had fully put to death, they keep getting up out of the grave and they, they champ their teeth and they wet their tongues, it's in those moments that Jesus, full of understanding and mercy and grace, comes to us and says, eat me instead. Eat me and experience life. Eat me and know that you are loved. Eat me and know that your sins are paid for and that your stains are washed away. And in those moments, however we do it, corporate worship, scripture memory, meditation, physical activity directed towards spiritual goals, prayer, reading a psalm, spiritual journaling, we exchange sickly spiritual cotton candy for the life-giving, life-altering body of Jesus. As the scriptures say, why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what is not satisfy listen listen to God and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of food Thank you thank you Jesus oh my Moses for his part in the face of all the israelite weeping and complaining over meats you know he can't handle it. And Moses uses a really classic line here, right? He basically goes to God and says, whose children are these? (laughs) Whose kids are these? He's doing that classic parent move. You'll never believe what your son did today. (laughs) I imagine Moses' attitude in this passage to be something like the guy in this video. That guy, the number of times he makes that face, right? (laughs) Those kids are just strolling in. Let me knock a book off the table. (laughs) Oh, man, the stretch to close the door at the end is great, right? That, they're not going to see me if I'm low to the ground. (laughs) You can imagine Moses feeling similarly with him and the Lord children of Israel, the adults are talking, me and God. Look, Moses is a pretty humble guy. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, he's going to be called the most humble man on the face of the earth. And so in a sense, there's a real positive here to what Moses is saying in that he doesn't pretend like he's able to take care of all the needs of God's people on his own. The best leaders know their limits, and their ultimate inadequacy before the awesome and frankly terrible task of leading God's people. Solomon, for example, famously prayed for wisdom from God because he knew that only God was actually capable of leading God's people. Moses' words, however, are somewhat misguided when he says that God has put the whole burden of this people on me. Notice what Moses says in response to the request for meat. He says, he basically says, who am I to provide this whole people with meat? And notice how when God says that he will provide the meat, Moses also says, who are you to provide this people with meat? Did you catch that? In verses 21 and 22, Moses expresses doubt that God is going to be able to fulfill that request. So in this passage, Moses thinks that God has put the whole burden of the people upon him because he thinks that there are certain requests that the people have that even God cannot accommodate. In other words, Moses didn't even think to reply to the people, don't ask me for the meat, ask God, because he thought the request was beyond God's power to fulfill. Sometimes following Jesus is hard. The reality is that we follow a Messiah who commands his followers to take up their cross their instrument of execution and follow him so we should expect that a life spent following after Jesus is going to be full of challenge and even disappointment even as it is also marked by joy and hope and victory but sometimes we make the christian life harder simply by trying to carry more than we can bear we weren't made to carry everything we weren't made to carry we weren't even made to carry everything that strictly pertains to our own lives let alone carry everything pertaining to the lives of those we lead or parents or teach or love. Some things in our own lives are themselves simply too heavy. We do our best to bring them to Jesus and give them to him, trusting that he'll help us navigate them when the time is right. How much more when a hurting world comes to us and says, carry this and this and this and this and don't forget about this too, God is the one who is made to bear all burdens of all people while we are simply made to shoulder some burdens that God calls us into. That's part of what it means for us to be limited humans in the face of an unlimited God. And this goes both ways. Some of us need to think about laying down some burdens, burdens of ourselves that we can pass on to Jesus or burdens that we've taken on from other people while others of us need to come to Jesus asking him which specific burdens he's asking us to take up. We are in a "Some of the Spirit sermon series, so now we'll get to the spirit part. One way in which God enables God's people to bear their burdens, however, is by God's spirit. It's interesting, Moses is in such an overwhelmed state that he doesn't even think to simply ask God for help in bearing the burden of leadership. He simply says, how could you do this to me and uh, it'd be better for me to die than endure this hardship? God has another idea, however. How about I bring people around you to share in the burden of leading God's people? And in accomplishing this task, God doesn't tell Moses to select the most gifted people or to run them through his latest and greatest leadership curriculum, or to make them take the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs to assess who's got the greatest proclivity towards public leadership, he tells Moses that the only thing they'll need to become equipped to do God's work among his people is to, like Moses, be anointed by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God might come and rest upon them so that they become full of God's power to accomplish God's purposes in the life of God's people. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. He empowers God's people to take on greater weight and responsibility in the kingdom through the imparting of nothing less than the power of God which enables them to stand up under the weights of leadership, to stand up under the weights of life's many burdens and empowers them to act on God's behalf for his people. And this includes, but does not necessarily necessitate, a charismatic expression of being filled with the Spirit. The elders in this passage immediately begin to prophesy, reflecting the fact that the Holy Spirit has truly fell on them, but the text is clear when it says that it actually never happened again. They prophesied the one time and then they were done. In other words, the primary ministry of these elders wasn't prophecy. Even though, praise God, they prophesied. The primary reason they were anointed with the Spirit was to do the work of leadership. To become empowered to be load-bearing people in the community of God. And this is what the Holy Spirit empowered these people to do. To become load-bearing to take on more than their share of the burdens of their community that the work of God might be accomplished. Be careful, though, on this point. While they took on more than their share, they did not take on more than they were empowered to take on. Let me say that again. They took on more than their share, but they did not take on more than they were empowered to take on. In other words, Being a load-bearing person among God's people is still about what God is doing and what God has empowered you to do for this time and what God has given you the grace and compassion and vision to take on. It's not about being a spiritual superhero or about needing to be needed. It's about what God is doing and what God is equipping you to do. Now, in this text, while we see the spirit increase in the way he is poured out, increasing from just Moses to 70 leaders in the community, the vast majority of the people are still not spirit-filled in the sense of being specifically anointed to do the particular work of God. The later Old Testament prophetic vision, however, and the reality that is taken up in the New Testament is that all God's people can be filled with the Spirit unto the particular callings and burdens that God has called you to carry. In the New Testament, all God's people are filled with the Spirit and every single Jesus follower can expect that if they open themselves up to God, God will fill them with the Spirit, with a particular sense of vision and particular gifting to accomplish it so that they can serve God God's people, and God's purposes in the world in a specific way. And this is something that we want to experience and increase in our community at Mercy, that all of us, in our own unique ways before the Lord, in the ways that that is pleasing to God, and in the places that God is calling and equipping us, that we would be anointed in power and gifting by the Holy Spirit to accomplish those things. In order to accomplish this, however, we need to emulate Moses in the remarkable humility he displays in the face of other people experiencing the Spirit. Notice how concerned Joshua is when he witnesses others prophesying. He runs to Moses and says, Stop them, because if they're prophesying, they're suddenly potentially competing with Moses for leadership and spiritual authority in Israel. Moses was the one God anointed to lead, Moses was the one through whom God worked miraculous events, and now suddenly there are others with public spiritual gifts, distracting from Moses' own leadership. Moses' response, though, is incredible. He says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people would prophesy and that God would pour his Spirit out on all? Look, we can't be passionate about the Spirit distributing anointing and power among God's people and at the same time be concerned about our own self preservation and control. The Holy Spirit will not be controlled. The Holy Spirit will not be controlled. And in order for his work and actions to be done in a community, there are times when we really need to be content with just getting out of the way. And if we are really honest, there are some of us that need to receive a gentle invitation from Jesus to follow the example of Moses and let go of our impulses to control what the Spirit is doing, both in our lives and in the lives of others. And as we lay down these agendas before God, we become people that stop clutching the spirit out of self-preservation and begin, like I think my friend Ellie did, giving the spirit away that God's work might abound all the more. Notice in this text the different characters who gather. you notice the word gathering coming up? In this text, the people of Israel spend time gathering food, the thing that they craved. The minds and efforts, they're geared towards gathering up things for themselves to satisfy their desires. In this text, God also gathers, but he gathers up people that he might pour out his spirit on them. Here's my question to you. What do you want to spend your time and your lives gathering? Jesus invites his disciples into this ingathering work of God, saying that he'll make us fishers of people. But we aren't able to be divided in our gathering efforts. We either are going to be like God's people in the wilderness, constantly seeking to scoop up the little bits that fall and satisfy our self-identified needs, or we'll be like God, working to gather up people that might know life-giving relationship with Jesus through the Spirit. Another reason why the infilling of the Spirit in this passage is incomplete is that God actually doesn't send his full Holy Spirit on these 70 elders. Did you notice that in the text? Where did they get the Spirit from? God took some of the anointing that was on Moses and he distributed it from Moses and set it on the elders. He took some of Moses' own spiritual anointing and scattered it among the people. This is interesting because in the New Testament, Jesus is the person who has the anointing of the Spirit without measure and Jesus breathes on us to receive the Holy Spirit and in in that action, we receive the fullness of what God has for us in the Spirit that's uniquely for us. But so often we're content to follow this Numbers 11 model and we look at some spiritual person in the faith, maybe a person up on stage or, or someone who's been influential to us, uh, an elder in the faith in some way, and we go, I, I want what God has, uh, uh, their anointing in the Spirit, that's what I need. I need their anointing in the Spirit. You don't need their anointing in the Spirit. You don't need to go through a sort of heightened spiritual person like Moses and hope to sort of break off whatever a, a piece of God's given them. You just go straight to Jesus and, and get what God has for you. You. Yeah. you just go straight to the risen Lord and he has something for you that, that doesn't need to be mediated through some other person. You just go and you get it right from him. All right, some concluding thoughts concluding thoughts on hungering for Jesus and thirsting for the Spirit. First, let me encourage you to think well about eating Jesus among other foods. There are a lot of options out there for things that you can sustain yourself with today. It takes a number of things to continue to gear us back towards feeding on Jesus, right? And that image of communion is intentional, right? We, we go and we take communion and we eat his body. There are certain practices that help us remember. There's a life of an imagination that might help us remember. There's an emotional component to real relationship and sharing our feelings with Jesus that remind us to go to him. There's a simple act of the will, where we say, I'm just going to choose as much as I can to go to Jesus for my sustenance and not something else. I want to raise up today this idea of the imagination just for us to think about, right? Whether or not we go to Jesus for our sustenance is in some sense going to be shaped by our image of him. When you think of Jesus, what do you think? Do you think of, I don't know, rigidity and rules a standard you could never meet or disappointment? Or do you think when you imagine Jesus just how beautiful Jesus is? Because Jesus is gorgeous. He's just beautiful. And he's beautiful in his love for you. And where, when you think of Jesus, does that live, if at all, in your imagination? Because if something like that isn't living in your mind, it's not going to draw you to the pattern of practicing experiencing your sustenance in Jesus. When you think of Jesus, do you think of how courageous he was? An image of courage to put one foot in front of the other over and over again on his way to being stripped and beaten and mocked and crucified. That he did all of that knowing what was coming, and that he is the image of courage. And that when you are in places in your own life and you're wondering, where am I gonna be sustained when I'm fearful, does the image of the courageous Jesus come to you? If, if our imaginations are taken in other directions, if they're governed by other thoughts about Jesus and other images of him, we'll be less likely to know that he is nourishing in our times of need. Second thing, practicing the belief that God is the great beast of burden. It's maybe a slightly scandalous way for me to describe God, but God takes on animal imagery for himself. He's a sacrificial animal. I think that God also loves to bear our burdens. And so God is humble. He wouldn't mind being compared to an ox, some beast that just knows that they bear burdens that you come and you 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 lay a burden and they just keep going. They carry it and they keep working. God is like that. God's not surprised or disappointed when we bring yet another thing to Him. Really leaning into the idea that God bears our burdens takes a number of things. We've already talked about giving up some of the burdens that we think that we should carry out of, you know, a, 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 a misunderstanding of ourself in relationship to God. Let's think for a second about taking on burdens, however, the idea that the scriptures tell us to take on the burdens of one another, to help to bear one another's burdens. And I just wanna press really gently against uh, some very popular language that we use today about boundaries, boundaries language, become very popular. And some of us have come from relational contexts or religious contexts where we didn't have healthy boundaries with other people, and so we didn't know where they ended and I began. And so you've experienced real health and healing in relationships by becoming clear about those things. Let me just bless those things if you've experienced that as you've worked into, into creating clear boundaries with people. God bless you. There's a way, potentially, of using boundaries language, however to sort of keep ourselves at arm's length from things that God's calling us to get involved in that we just don't really want to get involved in, right? Especially when it comes to other people, those sorts of difficult people that, gosh, they're just sort of one need after another. You know, let me just suggest to you that we are really fortunate that God doesn't look at us and go, ugh, what difficult people. We're really fortunate that God doesn't do that. That when God looks at us, even though he's honest about the ways in which we are a mess, that he looks at us and is first gracious and compassionate and understanding. Even in the places where he says, stop doing that, he knows why we do it. He's understanding Right, and, and there's an invitation there to say, even as I have healthy boundaries with people and structure my life in a way that is full of relational health and sustainability, that I'm not going to use that language as a sort of, I feel good about myself justification to avoid entering into that hard thing God's calling me into. God calls us into helping to bear the burdens of other people. That's part of what it means to follow God. And this tension is there. We're called to help bear burdens and to know that God is the ultimate bearer of burdens and we cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. Finally, let's take away the idea that we should be humbly thirsting for the Spirit's power. We've talked about stepping up. We've talked about sort of stepping into receiving the power of the Spirit. I want to touch on this idea again about giving away the power of the Spirit. Look, we we can't, when we're talking about being open to a move of the Spirit in the community of God's people, it's very easy for us to trip over our own hopes and dreams about what God's going to do in and with me. Right when, when we use language about a move of spirit in God's people, we often sort of smuggle in ideas about what that will look like, and they're ideas that sound really good to me. How God's going to use me? How God's going to fix something in my life? How God's going to give me power? How God? How people are going to look and see? Wow, what a spiritual authority that person is, or a communal authority. And if we really want to be open to what God is doing through the Spirit in a community, we have to lay those things down and like Moses, become as passionate about the, the experience of other people experiencing the Spirit as we are about our own experience. Because it's really easy for us to say, yeah, I want power from God. I'd love to prophesy. That sounds great. And maybe people can start knowing me as a prophetic person and they'll come to me with their problems. And, and, and this is really tricky, right? Because God does meet the needs of his people through those mechanisms. And at the same time, they're just so fraught with our own ability to be concerned about ourselves and meeting our own needs by helping other people. Meeting our own needs as we're ministering in the Spirit. We know that we're on the right path if we are as passionate about other people experiencing the Spirit and even abounding more in the experience and blessing of the power of the Spirit than we do. That as we look at that and say, God, I am full of blessing in the way that you have touched me by your Spirit, but would you do it for other people even more? Wherever I'm gifted, wherever I feel strong, wherever I feel like God's used me, God, would you, would you even empty me of those things if it means... Passing on some of that spirit to other people that they might bless and abound and live and work and love in the kingdom of God. And if, if we find that we're not particularly excited about that, we just need to do some self-inventory in terms of why are we leaning into the spirits and what are we hoping to get out of the spirits. This is where Moses, I think, is a, is a, serves as a great Invitation and imitation for us to follow. That Moses, who I mean, let's just think. You know, if we were to create sort of like a hierarchy of really powerful biblical characters, right? Moses is right up there, right? I mean, no one here is ever gonna like part an ocean with a stick. <laughs> I, I'm just saying. I would. I'd love to be proven wrong. You make statements like that, and then you go, "Okay, God, that'd be really cool." But right? I mean, like, it's probably not. It's probably not gonna happen. Right? God used Moses to do that. God used Moses to strike, a, God, Moses did a lot of things with a stick. I'm just realizing this now. God, Moses stuck, struck a rock with a stick and water spewed out of it. Right? all these, you know, Moses was the only person in the Old Testament right? that, that it says spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. That was the relationship and power that Moses had. And when God split some of his anointing that it might be scattered onto more of the people of God, Moses said, praise God. Praise God. And there's an invitation there for us to follow that example in the footsteps of Moses and say, Lord, I love being used by you. I love it when your spirit rests on me and works good things in my life and the life of others but Lord, would you even take things that you've given to me and bless them to other people that your work might abound more and more, that it might not be just limited by the fact that I'm just one person, but that it might spread and spread and grow.